can go ahead and have a seat. As you, as you do, I want to teach you a little bit about uh, paraphernalia, memorabilia, baseball. If you were to go right now, you know you could pick up a baseball just about anywhere, at any store almost, and pay just a few dollars, two, three, four, five dollars for a good one. You could have that baseball, and you could take that baseball home, you could order off of Amazon, Amazon a baseball stand, and you could take that baseball, that bright white baseball, the red stitching, the blue lettering, and you could set that baseball on that $3 stand that you bought, and you'd have $6 in that display. At the end of the day, the $6 display that you purchased is probably worth about $2 now because you took it out of the package. It's worth nothing. Maybe you could use that baseball one day on a cool Sunday afternoon when your church body gathers at the park. But aside from that, it's not worth a whole lot of anything. In 1998, Mark McGuire hit his 70th home run. And that 70th home run baseball was sold for over $3 million. Signed baseball. Think of the difference, the contrast between this little tiny cheap white baseball and this slightly dirty with a smudge and a signature. Very little difference, same composition, and yet one is valued so much more than the other. And one is a testimony to greatness. One is a testimony to power. And it's not the one that you got from Walmart. It's the one that sold for several million dollars. You see, it might have been the exact same type of baseball, maybe even on the same exact production run, produced on the same day, same shift, same workers, all that the same. But the difference is one was touched by a professional. One was worked with as a tool in the hands of a great painter. It was used to do something that many people thought was fantastic. The testimony of your life may be similar. This morning as you consider your own life and you say, is my life a testimony? Is it, a, is it something to be set on display to bring glory to someone or something? If you're a Christian here this morning, I would say yes, absolutely. Which baseball are you most like? Not the one from Walmart, nothing wrong with Walmart. If you're a Christian here this morning, you are a trophy of grace. The fact that Jesus Christ himself has used you to demonstrate his own power and to bring glory to himself makes you a treasure and a trophy. This morning, I want to preach a message to you out of the book of John chapter 11. As we walk through John chapter 11, we're going to introduce to a man by the name of Lazarus. Lazarus was one such man. He was a true trophy on display for God himself. This man, uh, Lazarus, was an interesting guy. There's not a lot said about him, but we can speculate quite a bit. One thing we know about Lazarus is he had two really cool sisters, Mary and Martha. This family lived in Bethany. And the most special thing that we know about Lazarus before the events that take place in John chapter 11 is that he and Jesus were good friends. But Jesus 
God himself, incarnate here on earth, had a, had a, had a homeboy, hung out with him. That was, his, that was his guy. When he was in Bethany, this is the house that he was at. This is the guy that he was hanging out with and chatting with and, and staying up late and having these good talks and, in a sense, maybe solving the world problems. But he would get far closer than we would, right? But this is Lazarus. Simultaneously, as we, as we enter into chapter 11, we know this, that prior, just prior, the Jews had determined that they had, at one particular time, it was an unconcerted uh, effort, but they began to just instantaneously, extemporaneously, we're going to kill this guy. We're going to kill Jesus. And they say, try to stone him. And Jesus escapes away out of Jerusalem. And he says, I'm going to stay away from there just for now until things cool down. So he's around in some neighboring villages. And as, he, as it was his custom, he's teaching, he's preaching, he's healing. And as he's there, we don't know exactly where he's at. He's not in Jerusalem. He's not in Bethany, which is just a little less than two miles walk out of Jerusalem. We're not exactly sure where Jesus is, but we're not exactly sure how much time has passed since the last time Jesus saw Lazarus. But we know this, Lazarus becomes sick. He comes down with something. Most people believe that it was a quick thing that wasn't expected. Suddenly he's sick. Things are, are not going well. He doesn't look too well. Uh, he's coughing. And next thing you know, he just wants to lay down. He can't get out of his bed. Mom, mom's a little, or sisters are getting a little bit concerned. Neighbors are not, not sure what's going on. They begin to talk around town. Something's not right about this guy. And then it becomes clear. As it becomes more still, as the breaths become more labored, they think this is it. He's going to die. Imagine the pain. It's not hard for many of you to think about the pain of watching somebody suffer and expire. So what do they think as they rack their brains, as they're thinking of different medicines and different tactics that they could do to try to revive and bring him back to life and no doubt praying? They think, no, 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 we need to get Jesus. Jesus, he's healed way worse than this. He, He actually brought a dead girl Back from, the, back from the grave, brought her back to life. It's, he could do it. And so they send, go, run, don't stop, run, let Jesus know. So they take off to go get Jesus. Jesus gets the message that Lazarus, the Bible says the one that he loved like a brother, one, even that, it goes on to say that he loved him with a love that only God can love with. Jesus doesn't run to the side of Lazarus. As a matter of fact, he waits Disciples are torn. If Jesus were to go, they would go with him. It's dangerous. The Jews, uh, it's, the, the temperature is hot, hotter than our baptismal water. They want to see his life be ended. They want to see Jesus shut up. They want to have, they want to have rid of him. But at the same time, they're torn. They know Lazarus as well. And so as they watch Jesus, what will he do? Jesus says, I'm not going, not right now. We're going to wait. He waits till after Lazarus is dead before he goes to the family. And then a miracle takes place. I want to read that with you this morning. And so if you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to turn to John chapter 11. We'll begin in verse 1 and we'll read a good bit of the chapter this morning. If you don't have a Bible this morning, you can follow along on the... Screens, starting in verse number one, the Bible says, Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, 
the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. And so the sister sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. And now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. It might seem odd to you. When he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer. Verse 7, then after this he said to his disciples, let us go into Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the the Jews were, were just now seeking to stone you. Are you now going there again? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. And after saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. And the disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Let him be. Now Jesus had spoken of his death. They thought that he meant taking rest and sleep. And then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let's go also with him that we may die with him. Verse 17. And now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. And Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Mary and Martha to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and she met him. Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. Skip down to verse 38. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there'll be an odor, for he's been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. 
When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out! And the man who had died came out, his hands and his feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. I ask God to bless the reading of his word. I invite you to pray with me again. God, these are your words. This is the testimony that you've given to us this morning. As we look at it, we ask questions as to why that you would have this to be read this morning. Why you've given this your word. Why this account. Why did John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, record these things? We pray that you would enlighten us and that you would challenge us. God, that those of us who need to be corrected, that we would be corrected. God, those of us that need to be encouraged, that we would be encouraged. But ultimately, Spirit, that your word would not return void, but that those who are far from you will be drawn close. And those that are nearby would be lifted up. We ask these things in the name of Jesus and for his glory alone. Amen. I want to say this to you this morning. This is the, the one point that I believe this is driving this text. Now, there's many things here. If we weren't in the current uh, series that we are in, in the reading plan, we would spend quite a bit more time just really working through this passage. But the thing I want to really draw out that, that's here in the text is this, that your life, your death, and even your resurrection are ultimately all for the glory of God. Your life, your death, and your resurrection are ultimately all for the glory of God. Right at the beginning, you might be asking me, what is the glory of God? What does it mean to glorify God? The word glory in the Old Testament has with it the idea of greatness, magnificence, uh, weightiness. In the New Testament, the word is translated, uh, that's translated glory means dignity, honor, praise, worship. And if you hold both of those terms together, you begin to get a sense of what is being said here this morning when I say that your entire Life, your death, and your resurrection are ultimately all for the glory of God. It, it brings about this idea that your life is to help others, is the purpose is to help others recognize who God is and thereby praise Him and you as well. To sp- that your life is to speak truth and to reflect truth about the creator of this universe, that your life is to reflect and to display the greatness of Christ. We see it in the, in the baptismal waters being stirred this morning. It's an outward sign. It's a display. And what does this do? Well, it encourages us. It helps us to see who's on whose team, as it were. But ultimately... It causes us to see a truth about our God, and thereby we praise Him. And this is a, a bit of what it means to glory, to ascribe glory, to bring glory to God. So in this verse, the primary meaning this morning is not necessarily to praise or to sing about Jesus or to sing about God, but, but rather, as a, as a demonstration, when we see in the, the life of Lazarus, we see that Jesus' true life-giving power is on display. And that is what it means to glorify. So your life, 
your death and your resurrection are ultimately all for the glory of God, to speak truth, truths about who God is. I want to start by just jumping into these, uh, these three things, your life, your death, and your resurrection. First, let's look at your life. The purpose of your life is to glorify Jesus. The purpose of your life is to glorify Jesus. One of the ways that we do that is by trusting him, is by trusting him. I want to say this, that God is worthy, Jesus is worthy of your trust. He is worthy of the trust that you have over your life, that you would extend that into the hands of Jesus. We see it in the life of the disciples here this morning. Jesus, why would you want to go back to Jerusalem? Why would you want to do that? He's going to die. People die all the time. Why are we going to go back? Should we die also? Right? That old question, right? If one is, is really our, all of our lives and the mission that God has called us to, is that really worth Lazarus' life? And they'll probably kill him too, right? Why are we doing that? There's this anxiety. Look at verse 7. Then after, he, after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. And the disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. Are you going there again? Jesus, you know this. When they get done stoning you, there's no shortage of rocks in Judea, in Jerusalem. They're not going to be too tired to stone us too. They'll kill us as well. Are we really going to go back? Jesus says in verse 9, Are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. Jesus is saying this, The God who sets the sun and earth in their relationship to each other, to your specific place that you reside and walk on this globe. God has appointed those times and that he is the one that guards your life. And he's saying when the sun rises, it's set. We know when the sun will rise and it's not our, our control. It's under God's control. He sets the sunrise. He sets the time and place of your being, when you will come into this world, and he also controls when the sun will set in your life. It's not arbitrary. It's not random. Jesus is teaching them something. Listen, you should trust God. Don't be afraid of what man can do to you. They can do nothing to you. Nothing. It's not given by God. So these verses figuratively maintain that Jesus is as safe as he can be, as safe as one can be as so long as he performs the Father's will. And if he's doing what God has called him to do, he's as safe as can be. That truth extends to us this morning as well. There's no safer place for us. God has given us a task to do. You might say, well, that's not safe. Of course it's safe. And what's safe anyway? What does that even mean? By, by our standards, we might say, well, no, that's not safe. And true, that's not safe. But when the God of this universe sovereignly wills that we accomplish something or to go to a certain place, the safest thing for us to do is to submit to that. 
I love Thomas's response here. There's so much there, and we could really spend a long time unpacking Thomas and what he's really saying here and what's going on. But at the end of the day, Thomas says, let's also go that we may die with him. You might say, Thomas, he's kind of a, he's kind of sarcastic. He's kind of a smart aleck, and maybe those things are true. But here's one thing that, that Thomas is not. He's not a coward. Let's go. If we're going to die there, hey, Jesus is right. If the sun is to set on our lives when we enter into Jerusalem, so be it. Let's go die with them. This is our lot. This is what God has called us to do. Thomas is giving his life to Jesus from beginning to end, sunrise to sunset. He's saying it's God's. You should also follow suit. If he were to die in Jerusalem, he would die. If he didn't, he, he, he wouldn't, right? It really didn't matter. God was worthy of his trust. He was going to put his life in the hands of his maker, of his savior. He believed that God was trustworthy. He also believed that God was worthy of his vitality. What do I mean by that? He, Thomas is not, a, he's not a kid, but he's not an old man. He's got lots of time left in his life. He's not saying at one point in time, I might be to the place where I could say there's not a whole lot left. Jesus, eat the rest of this sandwich here. Take it. I've already had most of it. He's saying, it's all yours. Whatever I have, it's yours. And what a testimony from the youngest to the oldest that we would be to this place where we would say, Jesus, we trust you with our lives. We trust you with our vitality. All the good parts, all the full parts of my life. We'll pour it out for your sake. We'll pour it out for your honor. Maybe you can relate with me this morning. You know what it feels like to go to camp in the summertime. Oftentimes I'll be talking with somebody about my summertime camp memories and how fond I, uh, my memories are of them. And it's not very pleasurable to see their faces when they say, I don't know what that's like. What? You don't know what it's like to go to summer camp? Really? That's, it's sad. Parents, you should send your kids to summer camp. It's wonderful. But kids, let me ask you a question. When mom drops you off at summer camp, maybe it's a week long, you're going to stay the night, maybe it's just a day camp, oftentimes what's the last thing she says to you? Have fun, right? Have fun. Mom Dad, when you pick your kid up from camp, if you're anything like me or my parents, what do you say? Did you have fun? Was it good? Right? What are we doing when we ask those questions? Well, we're teaching our children that the point of their time at camp on this one level is that they have fun. Go have fun. That's the purpose of summer camp. Go have fun. And so that's the question that kids are, you are to ask themselves when presented with an activity at camp. Is this going to be fun? Will I enjoy this particular activity? Will this, will this action bring me pleasure? We ask these questions and we ask them of summer camp. But church, I want to warn you this morning. I'm going to be painfully clear. That this life is not like summer camp. God is not dropping us off between our birth and our death. Our sunrise and our sunset, as it were, for us to have fun. It's not the point of this life. And when we end this life and we stand before God at the resurrection, he will not ask us that. Did you have fun? The 
question that will ultimately be asked over our lives is, did you glorify God? Did your life glorify God? Teenagers, listen to me. Your parents are not lying to you. They're telling you the truth. If they're telling you what the scriptures teach, and I'm confident that they are, this life is not about you. The sooner that you learn that, the sooner that you realize that this life is not about your experience, your pleasure, your joy, how you can edge out, etch and and, and just fence out your stake out, your part of this and find some way to harvest joy from that land that you'll be painfully disappointed. Ultimately, even if your life on this life goes well, the next one will not. This life is not about our pleasure. It's not about our joy. This life is about bringing glory to God the Father. That's the point. In Romans chapter 12, it's so helpful here. Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. It's your spiritual worship. Avenue of bringing glory to God. And how are we to do it? We present our bodies. We present our lives. Two things. Living sacrifice. One thing. One descriptor. One modifier. It's a sacrifice. It's not yours. You're giving it up. Freely. And this is bringing back the picture in the Old Testament of the sacrifice. The shedding of blood. The giving up of a life. Where this picture differs, where this command differs, is that we're not to be a dead sacrifice, we're to be a living sacrifice. God has called us to be a living sacrifice. Christian, your life is meant to bring glory to God while you live it. Not at the end, not what's left, but the vitality. All that you have, you say, I don't have much, Vitality in my life, I don't have a lot of money. I don't have a lot of skills. I don't have a lot of uh, talents. I don't have a lot of time. I don't have a lot of health. Whatever it is that you have, the life that you've been given, God is calling for it. That it bring glory to him and not to yourself. Now, ultimately, we know this, that God is working to glorify himself through our lives, but he is also working to bring lasting, eternal joy for us. We'll get more into that in just a minute. But while we live, we are to bring glory to God. It's his life that he has given. He, Christian, has purchased it. And we must operate in a manner that is consistent with what brings him glory. I'm going to give one more point as we talk about this idea of this life that you have bringing glory to God. And that's that Christian's should encourage one another. This is a wonderful picture. Thomas doesn't even realize what he's actually saying. But he's he's speaking to a theme that will resound throughout Christendom. And that is this. Take up your cross and follow Jesus. Do you see that? Come. Let's go to Jerusalem. We'll die as well. Yes, that's the call of the Christian. To come to carry your cross while you are alive and to die in a manner and a method that is, bringing, that is consistent with bringing glory to God. Thomas got it. He got it. He understood that his life 
Though it may end up being shorter than he originally thought, he realized that his life was not his own and that it was for God. He calls the other disciples to come even to their death. But what about death? We know our life is there, is intended to bring glory to God, but what about our death? One of the most tragic things in life is death. It might be difficult for, uh, for you to think this morning of something more painful than that. And yet there are other ways that we suffer. There are other ways that we, that we experience pain. And this begs the question for many of us, at some point in our lives, we've, we've wrestled with this. Why do we suffer? Why do we suffer? Maybe uh, just uh, an impasse for some of you. You might be stuck right here. If God exists, I, I, I want to believe in God. I want to believe, believe this old Christian thing. I want to, to embrace the Bible, but I have this one question. If God exists and he is by nature good, then how can evil exist? If God by definition is omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, he's obviously capable. If he is good, morally good, then why does pain exist and why does suffering exist I'll be the first to tell you that's a very difficult and I can't speak where the Bible doesn't speak but I I can speak where the Bible does and actually Pastor John Piper is helpful for us here he actually lists out a few points for us to consider through scripture and so I'm going to th- throw these out for you this morning under your death your suffering do we glorify God in that yes why does suffering exist? Why does, why, why does pain exist? Well, here's five ways that God uses pain in our lives. Five ways that God uses suffering. One, to bring us to repentance. To bring us to repentance. Suffering is a call by God for us to turn from anything in this world that we treasure more than Christ. It's idolatry. So God can use and does use Suffering and pain in our lives to loosen the death grip that we have on an idol in this world. He he uses it. In Luke chapter 13, verses 4 and 5, this is what the scriptures say. Or those 18 on whom the tower fell and killed them. Do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No. But I tell you, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Jesus is using this as an illustration. He's saying, listen, God will use pain and suffering in our lives, and he will use it in yours. Now look at this example. Look at this illustration. Worse will happen to you if you do not repent, unless you turn back. So suffering, even the suffering of others, God can use in our lives and does use in our lives to turn us from our sin of idolatry. Doesn't just, God doesn't just use it for repentance. He also uses it, use it to cause us to rely on him. And so the second one is reliance. Reliance. Suffering is a call to trust God and, the, and, and not the life-sustaining props of this world. Let me say that again. Suffering is a call to trust God and not the life-sustaining props of this world. We talked about this a few weeks ago. The bread of life. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. He says, this bread that I'm speaking of, if you eat of it, will not cease. It will not go away. It will not weaken as time goes on. It doesn't leave you like like Taco Bell. It sticks with you. 
It lasts for eternity. It's always satisfying. And yet, what do we do? So often we run. So often we run from the Lord and we lean into the gifts that the giver has given. And the so-called bread that we find all around us. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 8 and 9 say this. We were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired for life itself. How's that for prosperity gospel? This is the Apostle Paul. We were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. While they're in the ministry of Christ Jesus, proclaiming the gospel, he goes on to say, Indeed, we felt that we had received the very sentence of death. He explains why. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Paul says, listen, we we could have been given all of the things that we needed to preach the gospel faithfully and never experience a bit of suffering. We could have done that. Jesus could have supplied that. And yet, what he did, Jesus, in the life of Paul, saw that he needed to rely more on him. And so what did Jesus do? He allowed him to experience suffering. And Paul recognizes, by God's grace, That God was doing that to draw him to himself. That he would begin to rely not on anything around him, not on any fake falsehood, but truly and utterly on the God who alone raises the dead. It's a new perspective for us. As you walk through your life, as you even assess the situation that you find yourself in this morning and you say, I'm tired of this suffering, I'm tired of this part of my life. God, I can't, I despair of even life itself. Paul gives us a perspective. But what if God is using that suffering in your life to draw you to himself that you'll rely on him? You'll stop, stop walking around foolishly as if you don't need him. The suffering of God we see in this situation is actually the grace of God. It's the grace of God. He would lead us through these dark paths. That he would even lead us through the valley of the shadow of death. And in that very moment, we would see that in and of ourselves, we have no light to walk. That we would, in full reliance and trust, that we would extend our hand to his and ask that he walk with us. That we would rely on him. Thirdly, suffering comes into our life and Christ can use that in our lives to bring us to a place of righteousness. Can bring us to a place of righteousness. Suffering is the discipline of our loving Heavenly Father so that we come to share His righteousness and holiness. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 6 says this The Lord disciplines who He loves, He chastises every son whom He receives. He disciplines us for His good that we may share His holiness. He disciplines us for our good that we may share His holiness. See, the work that Christ has done in our lives, he has done without us asking. While we were enemies of God, he has resurrected us, as it were. And now, positionally, we stand sanctified. But he teaches us and he trains us in righteousness. And through suffering, he draws us into that place of holiness. Practically, as people look at our lives, they begin to see what Jesus already sees, what God already sees when he looks at his his sons and his daughters. So God uses suffering to bring about righteousness. Fourth, 
He brings, uses suffering to bring about reward. Suffering is working for us a great reward in heaven that will make up for the every loss here a thousandfold. Every single thing, every pain, every loss, every death, God uses that to bring about a greater reward that is set apart for us in our future. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17. 2 Corinthians 4, 17 says this. This light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. This light and momentary affliction is preparing us for eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. You say, he doesn't know what he's talking about. He's not lived my life. He's not experienced what I've experienced. He doesn't know the loss. This is the words of Paul under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And I would correct you. We, we know that in Paul's life that he has experienced loss. He knows what it's like to be rejected. He knows what it's like to be abused. He knows what it's like to even be murdered to the point of murder several times stoned. He knows what it's like to, be, to, to face natural disaster time and again. To barely escape being swallowed up by the ocean. He knows exactly what that is like. And God uses that in his life to bring about a reward. And finally, God uses suffering in our lives to remind us. So he uses suffering as a reminder Suffering reminds us that God sent his son into the world to suffer so that our suffering would not be God's condemnation, but his purification. Philippians chapter 3 verse 10 says this, That I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings. God uses suffering in our life to remind us not just of the passion of Christ and the suffering that he went through, but also the power of his resurrection. So it's understandable that the Christian heart would cry out in suffering, Why? Why would you let this happen to me? Why, Martha, Mary say, why would you let our brother die? You love him more than any, more than most. If nothing else, he's your favorite. And now he's suffering. His breath is drawing to, uh, to, to be becoming more labored. Why would you make him go through this? We don't know the exact reasons for our sufferings, but now as you see in these five things we can trust, our lives and our death, end of our lives, we can trust those in the hand of God who is worthy of our trust. He's worthy of our vitality. He's worthy of all of our glory. And this is what we see. Look back in verse number four, chapter 11. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Some unbeliever may look at this passage and say, how, how sadistic. It would make somebody suffer. They're, they're going to die. If you don't know this truth already, Lazarus dies. All of the pain that is associated with it, he experiences. His family members, they experience true mourning and loss. All of this pain, they literally walked through together. And Jesus is saying, but he's not even really going to, it's not going to end in death. Yeah, in this story, there will be death, but there will be resurrection. 
But why would Jesus allow him to go through this pain? Why would he say it's for the glory of God that he would go through this? It's for the glory of God that Mary and Martha would experience this. It's for the glory of God that you would be in fear as you walk back to Jerusalem. Why would he say that? Listen, in our sickness, in our suffering, in our pain, in our death, Jesus is glorified. It draws us to himself. It glorified. Listen, your life is not about you. It's an empty and sad life. If at the end of your life you could claim that you've kept it all to yourself and you've not lost a bit, what have you truly gained? We know that. It's so practical. It's so obvious. As we consider even wherever you're at in your life, as you consider what you've walked through before, you know that the the times that you've siphoned off and that you've separated out and you've secured for your own desires and your own glory portions of your vitality, you recognize that it's left you empty. And like man is supplied by God daily, if kept for the next day, it spoils and breeds worms. There's nothing there. Everything, every aspect of our life, all of the pain God uses to bring glory to himself. Every single piece. And while we're here on this subject, did you, did you catch what Martha said? I love it. It's full of faith. It's not based on a comprehensive information of Jesus. She says, if you had been here, Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. There's so many ways, there's so many applications and truths that are being displayed there, not just in Martha's statement, but in Jesus' response and even in the fact that John would record it in the manner that he did. But I want you to know this. Jesus is not, even as he walked the earth, he, he never was confined to what he could see with his own two eyes. He didn't have to be in the same county or the same state even. Jesus was, in some sense, Jesus was present with them even then. I believe that Jesus waited until Lazarus died. When he knew he was dead, then they began their trek. Then they began their journey. That's my personal preference. Why? Because Jesus knew. If he had been here, well, I, I appreciate this sentiment. I, I appreciate you saying that about me, Martha, but that's not true. I'm not hindered by location. You may say, I don't know that Jesus is with me now. Let me tell you something, Christian. You have never experienced one single ounce of pain, loss, and suffering that Jesus has not been with you. You've not. It's a lie to think that you have. Jesus, if you would have been here, I wouldn't have experienced that pain. That's a lie from the devil. He walks with us through every bit of our pain and suffering and every bit of our loss, even up into death. And though you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, listen, he is with you. He's never separate from us. That's a truth that we have this morning. And so while he does use suffering in our lives, he doesn't use it in his absence. He uses it in his presence and obviously in ours as well. He knows our pain. He's present with us. I want to show you this. He's moved by it. Jesus is moved by our suffering. One of the clearest displays of Christ's humanity. And his ability to truly know what we are experiencing is displayed right here. We know that he, that he could not be touched or that he was touched with the feelings of our infirmities. Look at verse 33. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. 
And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. And Jesus wept. Jesus wept, the Son of God, the incarnate Word of God. Emmanuel, he wept. And so the Jews, they looked and they saw and they said in verse 36, see how he loved him. Some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind also have kept this man from dying? So often the Jews are spoken of when it's used, the Jews, speaking of those from Jerusalem, it's, it's typically in some negative light, but it's not here. They're not being negative here. They're truly empathetically weeping, sympathetically crying. Could he not have opened the eyes of the blind man and kept this man also from dying? Verse 38, it says, Jesus was again deeply moved. That word, that phrase deeply moved, it's much deeper than deeply moved. It wasn't just like, this is sad, this is hard. It's much greater than that. Jesus, in a sense, is wrecked emotionally. This is heavy for him. Recently, my entire family, as we were going through the the foster care uh, system, we had to all get a shot, every one of us, all of us. Didn't have this one shot, we got to go get it. And so like uh, sheep to the slaughter, we lead all four children, my wife and I included, into the waiting room. Lambs led to the slaughter. I know what's about to happen. They don't. <laughs> I didn't think it would be that big deal, that big of a deal. Sarah and I, we definitely underestimated the anguish and the pain that we would be in store, that was in store for us. And we weren't, we weren't prepared for it. In fact, I, I struggled to not be overcome emotionally and just lose it. As our older kids, trying to be brave, scared themselves, and this is so, so sad, right? Right? That they're going to get a tiny little shot, but it's sad. They're scared out of their minds. They've got to get this TB shot. Riley, being brave, extends his arm, receives the shot. I'm not going to tell you whether he had a tear or not. Eli, just not quite as brave, wanting to be brave for, this, for his younger sister, sticks his arm out. Oh, we're doing this, God, for you. We want, to, we want to help the babies in Hagerstown. So he puts his arm out and he gets a little shot, right? And then the next two, it's unglued. <laughs> Minds lost. As I peer into the eyes of my eight-year-old, there's no consciousness. There's just fear. Just anxiety. I look back at the older boys They were brave. They were strong. Now they're not. Why? Sympathetically broken. That's so cute that they're broken for their sisters. And we're broken. I'm broken for my daughters. And I begin to cry as well. I'm holding back. I'm blubbering. This is tough. This is difficult. They're suffering in many ways. This picture, this, it's weak. But I think it's helpful for us to see what Jesus was going through. In control of the entire situation. Able to stop every single second along the way. Able to rescue them from this suffering. I led them to it. I was with them the entire time. And I knew that it wouldn't hurt them. I knew that they would be able to walk out of there and be alive and dandy and the better for it. And we could minister here in Hagerstown because of it. And yet I was wrecked. Emotionally as I saw the pain in their eyes. And listen, Jesus, as he looks into the pain, into the eyes of Martha, 
And Mary, he is pierced back into his by the pain and the loss and the suffering. And he's there. He's not, he's not removed. God is not some sterile being that does not care. Of course not. We see it here. He's broken for it. He knows our pain. He sees it. So if you're ever tempted for just a second to believe that Jesus cannot be touched with what we're touched with, that he does not know and he's not near, and had he been near, we would not experience that pain, that's a lie, and you have to remove that from your mind. Jesus knows what we're going through. He sees it in our eyes. He feels it more than we feel it, and he's moved. He's moved. So all suffering, even up to the point of death, Jesus is using in our lives. I think what's more, Jesus in that moment as he is just broken emotionally, he sees the effects of sin and death. In verse 38, he's moved again. But this time it points to the fact that people were misunderstanding what was going on. They misunderstood his power. I think this is a great testimony for us as we see the brokenness in our world, as we see those who misunderstand we consider the cults around us that have shot off out of Christianity, they've, they've embraced some damnable heresy, are our hearts not broken for them? Are we not greatly, deeply moved as we see that they're farther from Christ than they were? We should be broken. Jesus, as he, can, as he surveys the crowd, he sees that they've, they're confused and they're in pain. And he's moved as well. Would, would we not be moved as well? Would we not weep with those who weep? Will we not cry over those who are broken and lost and on their way to hell? Jesus is moved as he looks over Jerusalem. How often I, would, I wish to gather you. He weeps over lostness. Do we as well? Ultimately know this. That our pain, our suffering, and ultimately our death are given by God as a grace to bring us to the place where we can truly glorify God. We can truly glorify God. And at first glance, that doesn't appear to be a pleasant truth to you. That God would, bring, would receive glory in our suffering. That God would receive glory even in our loss up to death. When you realize that pain and loss, suffering are all workings of God to draw you and others to a deeper relationship with Him. It brings a peace and a joy that even death or the lack of it cannot take away. When we realize that every bit of what we suffer, all of our loss, it brings glory to God, and that is the point of our lives. Whatever it is, as a drink offering, pour it out for the sake of the glory of God. It's the thing that we don't want to hear. Perhaps you're even hesitant to convey that to your children. But the sooner that you do, the sooner you'll be speaking truth into the lives of your children. And I thank God that my life, that your life is not about me because I cannot sustain the weight of that. It can't produce the joy that, my, that I'm, I'm born to experience. Not lack of pain, not lack of suffering, but the joy in the midst of that. My life can't bring that. And my delayed death can't bring that. All of these things are for the glory of God. And not only is your life and your death for the glory of God, but also your resurrection. 
also your resurrection is for the glory of God. Look at verse 25. Jesus said to her, I am the, uh, yeah, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the son of God, who is coming into the world. What's so transparent about Martha's statement is in, in verse 21 uh, is, is, what, is that she's looking with faith into the past longing for what might have been. And when Jesus speaks to her, addresses her, if you had been here, come. And Jesus looks to her and says, he looks toward the future and he declares what will be. She looks to the past and says, what might have been? Jesus looks to the future and says, this is what will be. He will live again. And she says, yes, I know he'll live again. And at the resurrection, the last day, and Jesus says, no, he's going to live again today. I love what Jesus is teaching her here. He says, I am not responsible for the resurrection. Although he is saying that. He's saying, Martha, you're right. There is a resurrection at the end of life. At the end, in the apocalypse, there is a resurrection. And I will be responsible for that. But even more than him being responsible and being in control of the resurrection at the apocalypse, at the end, he's saying, it's not an event, Martha, The resurrection is a person. The resurrection is the return of all that is lost in life. It's all that's promised in the next. This is the resurrection. All the loss that we've experienced in this life is found again, even up to death, in Jesus. He is the resurrection. What hope do we have as Christians? Jesus is the resurrection. But he's more than just the resurrection. Jesus says, I am life. D.A. Carson, he's very helpful here. He says, he reminds us that this reoccurring theme is, is, is just permeated throughout the Gospels, and this Gospel particularly. In anticipation of Jesus' resurrection and the pouring out of the Spirit, there is a repeated promise that those who believe in him will immediately possess eternal life. I tell you the truth, if anyone keeps my word, Jesus says, he will never see death. John 8, 51. Ordinary, mortal life ebbs away. The life that Jesus gives never ends, Carson says. It's in that sense that whoever lives and believes in Jesus will never die. There's neither resurrection nor eternal life outside of Jesus. This is what he wants Martha to know. This is the comfort that he brings to her in the worst thing that she could imagine experiencing, the death of her loved one. Life for the believer does not end at death, but it continues evermore in fellowship with God. This is true for those who, like Lazarus, were in the tomb as well as those who are still alive. The point of Jesus' statement is this, that it is only by means of our union with Christ, the risen Lord, through faith alone, that believers come to experience this abundant life of the age to come, which begins now by the Holy Spirit's power and will reach consummation at the resurrection of our bodies. How helpful is that? Lazarus was a man who in his life, death, and resurrection glorified Jesus, glorified the Lord. And I'm going to show you quickly how he did that. First, look at verses uh, 9 through 11. Uh, Just look at 11. It says, Because on account of him, many uh, of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. This is chapter 12, uh, verse 11. Because on account of Lazarus, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. 
So one aspect of, of, of uh, Lazarus' life bringing glory to God is that as a resurrected man, dead four days, now alive, people are looking at him and saying, Jesus really is the Messiah. He really is the Son of God. And I'm going to believe in him and have life in his name. I believe that Jesus, they would say, really is the resurrection and the life. I see it demonstrated in the life of Lazarus. And so Jesus did a miracle in his life. It was a powerful demonstration of his deity, right? That's not the only way that Lazarus contributed to the glorifying of Jesus Christ, to the lifting up, to the conveying of truth. It goes on. Look back in chapter 11, verse 4. It says, but when Jesus heard it, the death of the sickness of Lazarus, he says, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, there's two levels. We've already seen one. A a resurrected Lazarus would bring glory to Jesus. Those looking around would say, man, this is amazing. But on a greater level, let let me show you what's happening Verse 53 says of chapter 11, So from that day on, the Pharisees, they made plans to put Jesus to death. You see, before they were just aggravated. And in the moment, if they saw him, they would try to throw a rock at him. But after the resurrection of Lazarus, so many people were turning to Jesus But the Jews, the the Pharisees decided we've had enough. We will make sure that his life is snuffed out. That the end of his day comes. The sun will set on Jesus. And so Lazarus dies. That's step one. Follow it. Step two, Jesus raises Lazarus. Step three, the Jews are angry because everybody is following Jesus, or many people are rather. Step four, the Jews want to kill Jesus And step five, Jesus ultimately is crucified and thereby glorified. You see, on a small level, people saw Lazarus and they turned to him. They turned to Jesus. And on a much greater level, the life and obedience and just the openness of Lazarus, just the presence of God working in Lazarus' life, brought Jesus to the place where he could be, as Jesus said in John 3, lifted up on the cross, and thereby drawing men to himself. Mission accomplished, Lazarus. On many levels, you have glorified Jesus. You've glorified God. In your life you did, in your death you did, and in your resurrected life, in your resurrection, you glorified Jesus. People's perception of Jesus was different after having met Lazarus. And I want to ask you this question. Is that, can that also be true of you? Is Jesus' is Jesus's reception different in the lives of those around you because they've seen Jesus in you? Or is it the other way? Is it positive or is it negative? You may push back and you might say, hey, Lazarus is different. I'm different than Lazarus. It's not fair to compare me to Lazarus. And I would push back on that and say, yes, it is fair. And let me show you. Lazarus was a common name in those days. It's actually a form of the Old Testament name, Eleazar. And it means this. He whom the Lord helps. Or one whom the Lord helps. 
Like Lazarus, Christian, you were also dead in your sins. Just like Lazarus, you were dead in your sins. You needed help. That's an understatement. And you were helped. You were quickened. You were made alive. You were brought out of the waters. And that's what baptism represents. The death and the burial of the old man. And then the resurrection of the new man. And that new life, that new creation, that new creature is there to bring glory to God. And so ask yourself this question. Can what is said about Lazarus in John chapter 12 be also said about me? That many people are coming to Christ and believing in him because of my life. I wish that was the case of me. I pray that it would be. Would to God that he would give me a testimony like that. And that he would give us a church full of brothers and sisters. And that's what's said about them. That because of their lives, individually and collectively, that those that are far from Christ are drawn near. Wouldn't that be a wonderful testimony? Because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. I'm going to tell you this. Lazarus is not the main character in this story. You shouldn't. Shouldn't be in the heading, really. This is not about Lazarus. This is just some random chump, right? That Jesus did a miracle on. It's just any old baseball that you can buy. But that baseball, when pitched to Mark McGuire, can be batted out of the stand, out into the stands. That's the point. Your life is not about you. Your life is about Jesus. Your life is about God. In some ways, when someone tells you a story about Michael Jordan dunking a basketball or Babe Ruth swatting a baseball out of the park, you might think something special about that ball. You might think something special about the, the, the bat. Those stories are not about either one of those things. They're not about either one of those things. They are not about inanimate objects that can do nothing. Those inanimate objects, they only point to the greatness of the one who used them. A paintbrush in the hand of a man like me may be the same paintbrush as the, man, as, the hand, as the one in the hand of Michelangelo, and yet the work will look quite different. Testimony will be there. There on that canvas. And Jesus, as he works in your life, he is crafting a beautiful canvas that brings so much glory to himself. And the task that we've been called to it's to just expose that, to display that. And that's what baptism is. It's just a small picture. It's just a small part of us glorying and relishing in the, glory, in, the, in the goodness and the truths of God. But so much more as we live our daily lives in our cubicles, around our tables, in our cars, at the ball field, wherever we find ourselves, would we also have that testimony that we are pointing other people to Jesus and that they're finding him? And would we be a church that really truly embodies this truth that our lives, our deaths, and our resurrections are all about, ultimately about, the glory of God? Would you pray with me? God, we beg of you this morning that you would give this testimony to us Same as Lazarus, that many people, that many women, that many children, would, many men would be drawn to you as they see Christ lifted up, as they see the beautiful artwork that he has painted on the canvas of our hearts. They'd be drawn to the work that he, that he does. 
that they would ultimately repent of sin and place their faith in you. God, if there's somebody here this morning that, as it were, they're dead in their sins, they would look at this tank, they would be reminded of what it signifies, what it demonstrates. They would long and desire to come up out of that grave. And even that would be a testimony that you're working in their lives. God, we pray that you would do it. We pray that you would take inanimate objects, that you would take hearts of stone, that you would remove them from hearts this morning, from from chest cavities this morning, that you would replace them with hearts of flesh that could pump blood, that could breathe air, And by your power, Spirit, would come up from the grave. God, would we be a church comprised of people that live in light of the fact that we have been raised and that we would now point others to you. Jesus, thank you for helping us. I pray that you'd do more. You'd draw more to yourself. We ask these things in your name for your glory alone. Amen.